Thank you, worship team. Appreciate you all so much. Well, first of all, I just want to thank all of the uh, uh, men and the ladies in our church that have helped us over the last uh, three or four weeks. Uh, many of the men have been here uh, late at night uh, doing construction work, painting, adding walls, woodwork, all that kind of stuff. The ladies have come and helped uh, a little bit with that, a, little, a lot yesterday with cleaning uh, the whole place. Uh, because as you see, we've got new carpet in uh, this Sunday, and that was throughout the entire building. And so that was a big thing going on this week, and that kind of completes uh, the updating of the interior of our building. And so I just want to thank you all uh, for doing that. I know that probably some of you uh, woke up this morning and have tired bodies and tired minds, and you just kind of thought, wow, I, this would be a great day to just play hooky and stay home. I just, I just want to... Uh, I just want to share with you a little story about a pastor that decided to do that. This uh, pastor, he decided to skip services uh, one Sunday. He was really tired and everything, so he uh, called the church and had his associate pastor preach for him. He just kind of skipped out, spent the day just kind of walking through the wilderness, and he rounded a sharp bend in the trail that he was on, and he collided with a bear, and he was sent tumbling down a steep uh, hill, and he landed on a rock, and he broke both of his legs. <laughs> Uh, and with a ferocious bear charging at him from a distance, the preacher decided to pray, Oh Lord, I'm so sorry for skipping the services today. Please forgive me and grant me just one wish. Make a Christian out of that bear that's coming at me. At that very instant, the bear skidded to a halt, fell to his knees, clasped his paws together, and began to pray aloud at the preacher's feet. Dear Lord, please bless this food I'm about to receive. So there's a lesson in uh, skipping out on church, so you might uh, appreciate Of course, that's for all the people that didn't come. You guys are the ones that came. Uh, so anyway, there's a, a thought for the next time you're feeling tired and listless on Sunday morning. Well, we are in the book of Acts still, and uh, I got to tell you, every week as I uh, go through uh, another chapter, another half a chapter, wherever we're at, uh, it's enlightening. Uh, as I read this book, uh, I don't know how many times I've read through the book of Acts, many, many times, uh, there are just new and exciting things that kind of pop out, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm excited to share with you the things that um, this passage has to uh, say. We're in Acts chapter 17. Uh, this is the middle, uh, towards the middle of uh, Paul's uh, second missionary journey. And as you have seen, there's been a pattern emerging. Uh, Paul goes into a city. He preaches the gospel. Uh, some people turn to Christ. Some don't. Uh, there's persecution, and he moves on to the next city. Uh, well, as you see that pattern uh, happening, and uh, it, it's easy to say, oh, goodness, here's two more cities. Oh, here's three more cities. Oh, it's all the same. I want to be really uh, clear that if you really pay attention to God's word and you read it carefully, uh, every single time he goes into one of these cities, something different happens. There's something uh, uh, unique about where he's at, about what happens, and I think you're going to see that today. While on the surface, it may look like, wow, two more cities, same old story. Uh, there are some things about these two cities that I think are particularly interesting. And so today we're going to look at Paul as he goes through Thessalonica and Berea. Uh, these are two uh, interesting cities. Um, and actually, uh, just to show you where they're at, as you remember, uh, Paul started here in Antioch. He went through here, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, uh, Antioch, in Galatia, and he wanted to go north this is basically modern-day Turkey. He was wanting to go north into Asia. 
and God forbid him twice. The Holy Spirit stopped him two times from doing what he felt like was his mission, to go into Asia. And he got here to Troas, and he had a vision, and there was a man over in Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. Please come help us. And so Paul and his companions uh, set sail, and they went over here uh, into Macedonia. Now this is uh, 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 modern-day Europe, and you see the, uh, the city of Philippi, which we were in last week. And then today we're going to look at Apollonia and Thessalonica and Berea. But mostly Thessalonica and Berea because these two cities, Apollonia and Amphipolis, uh, these two cities are basically just mentioned. Uh, which is interesting because we never see any letters to these churches. Uh, we don't really know anything that's happened in these two cities except they were worth mentioning. Uh, so we really don't know what's happened there, but we're going to spend the rest of our time today in these two cities in Thessalonica and Berea. Now, some people would ask, why was God uh, so interested in the Europeans instead of the Asians? Does God love Europeans more than Asians? Uh, no, of course not. But there were some very specific reason, reasons. Here in uh, uh, Europe, uh, there has been a road system created. There was none in Asia at this time. And so the gospel spread uh, just incredibly quick throughout Europe, uh, where it wouldn't have spread nearly as quickly uh, through Asia. So there are some things that God knew strategically that Paul and his companions uh, never figured out really uh, strategically. They just followed God. And so sometimes when you're just following the Lord, uh, he will do things that you can't even imagine, as we have seen many times. So let's get busy. In Acts chapter 17, we're going to start with verses 1 through 3. Here's what it says. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. And to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And we see here that Paul reasons with the Jews in Thessalonica. Now this is an interesting wording. We've heard before that Paul has proclaimed the gospel in other cities. This is the first time that Paul has reasoned with them from the scriptures. You know, we have a tendency as we think about faith and having our faith in Jesus Christ, we all have a tendency sometimes to believe that faith is a blind, uh, just, hey, I'm going to close my eyes and step off this cliff because I have faith in it. But that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith means in light of all the circumstances, in light of all the evidence, I'm going to make an intelligent decision. And so he sat down with these Jews and he reasoned with them. He started in a place they knew, the scriptures, the Old Testament, and something they had in common. He said, look, you guys believe the Old Testament? I believe the Old Testament. Let's look and see what the Old Testament has to say about the Messiah. And then when he, uh, when he did see what it was, he said, and by the way, there's really only one guy that's met all of these prophecies. It's a guy I know named Jesus. And so he's reasoning with them. He's not arguing with them. He's talking to them. He's reasoning with them. He's helping them understand the gospel. 
He showed them those Old Testament prophecies. He showed them specifically how the Savior would have to suffer and then rise from the dead. And when he did this, he confirmed that Jesus was the only person in history that had fulfilled these prophecies. And so immediately, uh, these men were like, well, I, I believe all this stuff. I, I believe all this stuff. How, you know, maybe there is this guy. Now, I use this strategy when uh, men come to my door um, from other denominations that are quasi-Christian. Uh, some of them come to my door and they say, hey, can we come in and talk to you and tell you about our particular denomination? Uh, and, and I make a deal with all of them. I say, here's the deal. If you come to my door and you want to come in, here's what I'll do. I will let you come in. We'll sit down in my living room, and you get 20 minutes uninterrupted. Then I get 20 minutes uninterrupted. If you're willing to uh, live with that, then come on in and we'll talk. So they come in, and they, they begin to talk. And I usually have a pad of paper and a pen with me. And as they begin to talk and say that the Bible says this or the Bible says that or their extra book says this or that or whatever uh, or their founder says this or that, I take notes. And then when they're through, when their 20 minutes is up, I say, okay, guys, thank you very much. Now it's my turn. And I say, you believe this book, right? You, you started out by saying, hey, we're Christians. We believe this book. Okay, so you said this. Here's what the book says, which contradicts what you said. You said this. Here's what the book says. It contradicts what you said. You also said this. And the book says this. It contradicts what you said. So when you leave my house today, you either have to believe your particular quasi-Christianity or you have to believe the Bible, which you can't believe both because they're in contradiction with one another. That's what Paul did with these guys. He reasoned with them. He didn't argue. He didn't get in a fight with them. He simply said, listen, you guys believe this book. Let's see what it says about the Christ. And then when he reminded them what it said, when they looked at the prophecies, he said, by the way, there's a guy named Jesus who met all of these. And that's how he reasoned with them. Look what their response is in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded... And joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Here we see that some, and by the way, that's a really important word. Remember that word, some. Some Jews received the gospel. And actually some of the Gentiles, too. It says that they were persuaded by Paul's logical deductions. He didn't tell them, hey, listen, guys, I know this guy that Jesus who died on the cross, paid for your sins, and rose from the dead. Just believe it. Just, just put your faith in him. Just close your eyes, jump off a cliff, and believe it. He didn't say that. He said, let me reason with you according to God's word, which you believe, and help you to see that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one and only Messiah. And as he talked with them, and he had this logical, uh, 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 I don't want to say confrontation, but the conversation with them, some of them went, wow, that makes really good sense. What you're saying really makes sense. I, I believe that. I believe that. And so their, their faith, you know, they can't see Jesus on the cross. They can't see him rise from the dead. So there is a certain element of faith. 
But it's not blind, ignorant faith. It's educated, knowledgeable faith in the one true Messiah. And some of them believed. Now, it's interesting here. uh, In our culture, we probably wouldn't write things this way. But it said that Jews and also Greeks and even some women believed and followed Christ. That's a big deal in this culture, in this passage. Because women were thought of as second-class citizens. But Paul is making the the case here, as he's going to make over and over and over again, that at the foot of the cross, when it comes to salvation, there are no distinctions. Neither Jew nor Greek, male or female. There are no distinctions at the foot of the cross concerning salvation. Now, we've talked many times before that there are are specific roles for husbands and wives, but that doesn't uh, insinuate value. Paul's saying here, hey, listen, even women chose to put their faith in Christ and follow Jesus. And it was a big deal for them, not only that they did it, but that he mentioned it. And in fact, the insinuation is that probably in some of the families, the women believed first. And the husbands then also took on that belief. So what happens? What do you think is going to be the response? What have we seen be the response? Let's look at verse 5. It says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Here we see that, as usual, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the mob. Now, I want you to understand that that what Paul's saying here about their motive is interesting. He didn't say, some of the Jews didn't believe and they thought we were heretics because we were preaching false doctrine, so they came against us. He's not saying that. That that, that would be a fairly uh, uh, righteous motive, I mean, if they thought, hey, this guy's coming, he's preaching uh, something that's not true, Uh, we should rise up against him, you could almost say, "That's, that's noble. But their motive was not preaching true doctrine. The motive for the unbelieving Jews was jealousy. It says they were jealous. Paul said they were sitting there thinking, man, these people are listening. This is all about me. It's all about my self-righteousness. It's not about following God. It's not about his righteousness. It's about me. You guys are following them instead of us. Now I'm mad. That's what was happening. They were simply jealous. And they stirred up a mob. And they attacked the house where Paul and his companions were known to be staying, this man named Jason. They attacked his house, looking uh, for Paul and Silas and Luke. They were tired of uh, uh, the things that they were preaching. They were really angry and jealous about people following them, and they went looking for them after they stirred up the crowd. Now look what happens in verse 6 through 9. It says, And when they could not find them, the disciples, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. 
And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So we see here that the mob persecuted those who harbored Paul and his team. They went looking for Paul and his brothers, his disciples, but they couldn't find them. So they thought, well, next best thing is this guy Jason, who we know that Paul's been staying at his house. Let's bring him out. And of course, once again, the Jews failed to even uh, follow their own laws about trials. This is, this is a totally an illegal mob. I mean, this is just, you know, this is a lynch mob. Uh, and they accused the disciples of turning the world upside down. Well, that's kind of true. Now, what they were saying was, hey, these men aren't following things uh, that they should be following as, 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 as citizens, which wasn't true. But it is kind of true that they were turning the world upside down. But isn't that what the gospel does? I mean, isn't that what a relationship with God does? It turns criticism and judgment into grace and mercy. It turns guilt and unrighteous behavior into love and forgiveness. The gospel should turn our world upside down in a spiritual sense. Now, they were saying it was happening in a political sense, which was completely untrue. While they were preaching that Jesus is a king, it's certainly clear that they don't believe Jesus was a king of this world. So he was no threat to the government. He was no threat to these Jews, except that they would follow him, Jesus, instead of them. And so we see once again that Paul and and his companion Silas, Luke, they go into a city, they preach the gospel. Some people follow, some don't. And the ones who don't have evil motives and drive them, in a sense, out of the city. Now listen, uh, Thessalonica is an important city. In fact, if if you uh, know much about the New Testament, there's actually two letters written to this church later. So even though Paul and Silas are getting ready to get out of town... They have done their work there. They have led enough people to Christ that a church is planted there. Uh, a, a good church that's going to thrive. And so they've done their work. And so in verse 10, they move on. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. <laughs> I think this is funny. First, they didn't run away out of fear or avoidance of the persecution. They never did that. But out of running to the next city where the gospel needed to be preached. The church at Thessalonica had been born. Uh, There was enough Christians who who were following Christ and meeting together that the church would survive. It would go on, it would grow without their leadership now. And so they moved on. But I think it's interesting that uh, you know, time and time again, we see that Paul gets into trouble when he goes to the synagogue and preaches Christ to the Jews. And so what is his strategy this time when he goes to Berea? Go to the synagogue and preach to the Jews. <laughs> he doesn't care that some people get upset about it. I think we care too much. I alluded to this uh, either last week or the week before all the Sundays run together for me. I think we care too much that people are going to get irritated at us about the gospel. 
When is the last time that you were truly persecuted for sharing your faith? And I don't mean somebody going, oh, you're one of those. That's, that's hardly persecution. When's the last time any of us were really, truly persecuted? Oh, some of you may have uh, not gotten uh, job promotions because you talk about Christ at your job. But when we look at true persecution in the New Testament view, probably none of us have experienced that. So Paul and Silas go to Berea, and the first thing they do is go to the synagogue to share Christ again with the Jews. Let's see how they respond. In verse 11, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The Bereans are famous at this time for being noble. They were more sincere about their faith. They were, they were interested in really following God. Uh, these were the really sincere uh, Jewish followers that loved God, loved his word, and were doing what they could sincerely, not out of self-righteousness, but sincerely to follow God. They were more noble than the Thessalonians. As Paul tried to reason with them and persuade them, he says they listened with eagerness. And they examined the scriptures every day to understand what Paul was saying. The Bereans said, is that so, Paul? Let's break out the scriptures. Let's break out, the, let's break out our scriptures and look at them. You, you said this guy is the Christ. You, you said he fulfilled all these prophecies. Let's look. Let's see. They weren't doing it to challenge him. They weren't doing it to argue with him. They were saying, Paul, if that's so, we want to see it. We want to believe it. We want to understand it if that's just part of God's plan. And so the Bereans, uh, you know, really took time. And I think it's interesting. They studied God's word daily. And what that means is these guys were kind of obsessed. They wake up. Get a quick shower, run in, grab the scripture and go, okay, remember what Paul said yesterday? Where's that at? Where's that? Well, yeah, well, here's what it says. Yeah, that, okay, that makes sense. That makes, yeah, he said this over here. That makes sense too. They were kind of obsessed with, with reading and understanding the scriptures. They were really intent about understanding. Paul wasn't really having to persuade them because they were persuading themselves about the truth. Remember before the verse in Thessalonians that said uh, some of them believed? Look what it says about the Bereans. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So it wasn't just some believers. This is a different word. There were many believers. There were a lot more believers in Berea than there were in Thessalonian, in Thessalonica. And the reason was because they searched the scriptures more. They weren't jealous about people listening to Paul. They were intent on knowing the truth. Whatever the truth was, they wanted to find it out. And as they, with sincere hearts, searched the scriptures, they came to the same understanding that Paul did, that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so it wasn't just some of them that, was, that believed, it was many of them 
that believed. It's interesting that the more they studied the scriptures, the more they became believers in Christ. It said many of the Jews received Christ there, as well as the Greeks, both men and women, again, as we talked about before. But they searched the scriptures daily, and many, many of them received the gospel. So it looks like things are going really well in Berea. Looks like things are really smooth here. Many people believe they, they come to know Christ, both Jews and Greeks. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And so we see here that through more persecution, Paul departs for Athens. Again, these Jews in Thessalonica came to Berea to be troublemakers, just to be troublemakers. There, there really weren't anybody, there really wasn't anybody in Berea that was, was stirring up trouble. But the Thessalonians heard what was happening, so they said, well, let's go there and cause trouble, which is what they did. This wasn't even their city. Look, folks, here, here's kind of the moral of this. I want you to understand this. Those that are antagonistic to the gospel will go out of their way to be antagonistic to the gospel. And it should not bother us. It should not. And I'm not talking about us being obnoxious or in people's face or rude, guys. You know that. But these are people that hate the gospel for the gospel's sake. And if they're antagonistic here, they'll be antagonistic somewhere else. Look, we know these people. We know people like this. At least I do. I think you probably might. We can't be discouraged by these people from sharing the gospel. We can't let these people put up a barrier that stops the progression of the gospel from our lips and from our lives. So what are the takeaways for us today? As we look at this historical, these historical events, what are the takeaways for us? Here's, I think, the first one. Don't argue, but reason with those who are legitimate searchers for the truth. Reason with them. Paul didn't argue, but he did suggest that there is a logical argument that Jesus was the Christ. For those who were legitimate seekers of the truth, the Bereans, they studied. They considered what the scripture said and they accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Now look, as I look around this room, there are at least two or three people in this room that I know I had multiple conversations with you before you received Christ as your Savior. I never twisted your arm. I never pushed your face into the Bible. I never hit you over the head with it. But we had some conversations, and I shared with you why it's incredibly logical to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Christianity is based on faith, but it also makes sense. Actually, yesterday I was talking with a man who I've been sharing the gospel with. And I had a discussion with him yesterday. 
And uh, he said he's getting close to receiving Christ as his Savior. But he had some questions. He said, now doesn't the Bible say uh, uh, you should not kill? So what makes it right for the state to kill people or, or, or the military? And I said, well, uh, first of all, uh, involved this very briefly. First of all, uh, it says do not kill in the King James Version. In most of your versions, New American Standard, NIV, I think ESV, I think two out of the three, it says do not murder. What the Ten Commandment is, is not don't take a life. If that were the case, then God has broken his own Ten Commandments. Because through the nation of Israel, God has killed many people throughout history. What it means is, thou shalt not murder. You should not commit murder. You should not take the life of an innocent person. And I said, so if somebody breaks into my home, and they are threatening the lives of my wife and children, my grandchildren, and I take their life, I have not committed a, a, a sin against God in the sense of the Ten Commandments. I have not killed, or, uh, in the sense of uh, killing them or murdering them. I've taken their life, but I haven't murdered them. So as we talked about this more, and of course that was a half-hour conversation with all the explanation of all that, he said, wow, that makes total sense. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm learning that the more I understand about the Bible, the more it just makes sense. And I said, you know, it's all going to make, it, it does make a lot of sense. The only part that I still can't make sense of is why God would love a sinner like me. Why God would decide to love somebody like me. But he does. That's hard to make sense out of. But folks, I, I want you to be ready. Don't argue with people, but reason with them. Especially the people who are legitimate searchers. The other takeaway I get from this is this. To use the scriptures... You must read, know, and be able to handle the Word of God. Folks, it is our responsibility to learn the Word of God by reading it, studying it, memorizing it, and then approaching people who are seeking the truth in love. Look what it says here in 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, what does that mean, handling the word of truth? Now, I know that I'm a little bit of a sick mind. I love those YouTube videos where guys bang themselves in the head or hit them with golf balls and it bounces off a tree and hits them in the face. I love that kind of stuff. I think it's hilarious. Okay, I know I'm a little warped. Well, you know those uh, YouTube videos with the guy with the nunchucks or they have swords or whatever and they wind up really hurting themselves? While they are, in my opinion, very hilarious, they don't know how to handle their weapon very well. They don't know how to handle the tool they have very well. They are, they are just a miss. What that passage is saying is, learn how to handle this book. Learn how to handle it. So when somebody says, well, I don't understand what, why would God do this? Well, let me tell you why. Here's what it says right here. Bum, 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 bum. I, I don't know why, uh, uh, you know, this happens or why this is the case or explain this to me. Okay. Right over here. Here it is. 
I had a conversation with the same man yesterday about, he said, uh, he goes, I, I do have a little bit of a problem with you saying that, that what you believe is right and what everybody else believes is wrong. I said, well, first of all, I've never said that uh, because nothing is right because I believe it. Here's what Jesus said. In John, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Now, either Jesus was right or he was a liar. So that's what Jesus said. I'm not saying it. He said it. And show him right from God's word. Folks, we need to be able to use this book and handle it well as though it were a, a sword in our hands, ready to uh, divide the truth and to tell people how to know God. We need to use it in our everyday life, not only for our own sakes, but for the sake of others, to share the truth with them. Listen, I don't have any truth in my head. I am, not, I am not the designer of truth. The only truth I have in my head is what God's put there through this book. And so it's important that we not only uh, uh, you know, give it a, a really treasured place on the coffee table, but it's important that we read it, that we break it open and study it, spend time with it so that we know how to use it. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for the, the, the historical event of Paul taking his team to these two, two cities. Father, thank you for your word that guides and leads us into all truth. Father, thank you for Jesus who died on the cross to pay for our sins. We could do nothing to overcome our sinfulness. And so we thank you for his payment for our sins. Father, I pray that you would help us to just have a burden in our heart to read and understand your word so that we might use it in a positive way in our own life and in the lives of others. God, help us to not be timid. Help us to not be shy or ashamed. Help us to be loving but bold about sharing the truth with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope that was beneficial uh, for you and, and, and kind of encourages you uh, to break open God's Word. By the way, uh, I've, I've been uh, discipling a group of guys that uh, uh, share with me this week that they've uh, never had a consistent time of reading God's Word, and, and so I've challenged them to read one chapter of John every day uh, for the next few weeks. And uh, they all committed to doing that. I'm excited to see how that affects their lives. If you haven't ever uh, just had a consistent time of reading God's Word, I want to really encourage you. Take three weeks, three weeks, and just read one chapter of John every uh, single day. It'll take you literally less than 10 minutes because the, the goofy British guy on my phone reads it in seven minutes. So I know you could probably read it in five, okay? It won't, it won't take a lot of time, but I, I'm just telling you it'll change how you view God's Word. And it'll change your life.